this morning. We're, uh, you can turn there. Um, we'll be looking particularly at verses 1 to 9 and also flipping back to um, chapter 41 as well. If you're using the Bible in the seat back in front of you, it should be page 513 in that Bible. So Isaiah 42, starting in verse 1. In his book, Abba's Child, Brendan Manning tells this story. He says, a man in Australia decided that life was too hard for him. He couldn't bear it anymore. He, he ruled out suicide. And, and so instead, he bought a large corrugated iron tank and he furnished it with the simple necessities of life. He hung a crucifix on the wall and, and then he moved in there and he lived a blameless and solitary life. But with one great hardship, every morning and evening, a volley of bullets would rip through the walls of his tank. And he learned to lie on the floor to avoid being shot, but still the bullets would ricochet off the corrugated iron walls, and the man sustained several wounds. The walls were pierced with many holes. They let in the wind. They let in the daylight and some water when the weather was wet. And as he plugged up the holes, he cursed the unknown marksman. And when he appealed to the police, they were not helpful, and there was little that he could do about his own situation. Well, slowly he began to use the bullet holes for positive purposes. He would gaze out through one hole or another and, and watch as the people pass by, as the children were flying kites, as lovers were walking hand in hand, the clouds in the sky, the flight of birds flowers in bloom, the rising of the moon, and in observing these things, he would forget himself. Well, the day came when the tank rusted and, and finally fell to the ground, and the man walked out with little regret. And there was a man with a rifle standing outside. And he, the man said, I suppose you're going to kill me now. Uh, this is the man who'd come out of the tank. But before you do, I want to know one thing. Why have you been persecuting me? Why are you my enemy when I've never done you any harm? And the man with the rifle laid his rifle down and he smiled at the man and he said, I'm not your enemy. And the man who'd come out of the tank saw that there were scars on the other man's hands and feet and that the scars were shining like the sun. Manning continues, the lives of those fully engaged in the human struggle will be riddled with bullet holes. Whatever happened in the life of Jesus is in some way going to happen to us. Wounds are necessary. The soul has to be wounded as well as the body. To think that the natural, proper, or ideal state is to be without wounds is an illusion. Well, those words, those surprising words, I think, in many ways, sum up the heart of the surprising passage that we're going to look at this morning. We at CBC know a lot about bullet wounds, don't we? We've endured relationships which are deeply broken. We have faced the insecurity and instability of losing jobs and investments over the past few years. We've lost those we love deeply. And it leaves a big gaping hole in our hearts. We've experienced disappointment. We've had dreams shattered and hopes dashed. I was talking to one of our leaders recently, and we were wondering 
together if CBC is in any shape to be thinking about reaching out to others when so many of us are so needy ourselves. Well, I invite you to enter into the story of Isaiah this morning as we look for answers. This morning we'll focus on verses 1 to 9 of Isaiah 42. It's the first of four so-called servant songs in Isaiah. And we'll be looking at chapters 40 and 41 too to try to get the context in which this first song of the servant comes. As we've been saying for the past couple of weeks, this portion of Isaiah Isaiah is addressed to the exiles in Babylon. Back in 586 BC, God had sent the Babylonian Empire to demolish Jerusalem and Judah because of God's people's many sins, and the Babylonians had taken them off into exile. And there in captivity, God's people had languished for several generations after that. But now Isaiah has begun proclaiming the good news that that the Lord is about to rescue them and to bring them home. You'd think that this news would make Israel happy, but instead we find them full of doubt and even indignation. They have trouble believing that God still cares about them after all this time. They doubt that God is able to set them free. And they certainly don't agree with how God proposes to do the job. Now to understand their response, let's take a little more time to get inside of their psyches. You see, God's people had stopped listening to God's voice long before the exile happened. They had still believed in the Lord, but the Lord that they still believed in was the God of their own understanding. As far as they were concerned, the Lord was one of many deities in the ancient world. And granted, he was their patron deity. He was a deity who was special to them. But they were covering their bases by also worshiping other gods like Baal and Asherah and Molech and others. Yet they knew that the Lord had a special interest in them and especially in their capital city of Jerusalem. After all, hadn't the Lord chosen Jerusalem to be the place for his own dwelling place, the temple? And hadn't the Lord made a covenant with David to establish his royal dynasty so that David would always have a descendant reigning in Jerusalem as king? So God's people took for granted that they were one nation under God and that the Lord would protect their capital and their king at all costs. And because this was their perspective, this was their theology, this was their politics, God's people were completely taken off guard when Babylon conquered Jerusalem and destroyed the Lord's temple and deposed the Lord's Davidic king and took the Lord's people into exile. And now a couple generations later, they still haven't recovered from this blow. I mean, if the Lord is real... If the Lord is powerful, if the Lord really cares about them, then how could he have let this happen? And where is he now? Meanwhile, in exile, they're surrounded every day by great signs of of the power of Babylon and of her gods. Babylon was the greatest civilization that part of the world had ever known. And, And all around were reminders of the great unmatchable imperial power. There were great monuments to Babylon's victories. There were mighty imperial buildings. There were statues and inscriptions and military parades, all trumpeting Babylon's might. 
Then there were the idols, these huge menacing statues which, uh, with, with elaborate uh, religious ceremonies um, to honor them, all celebrating the, the great overwielding power of the Babylonian gods who reigned supreme in the world and who had enabled Babylon to conquer the world. And all that gets into your psyche as you live with that day by day. And if you're a poor captive Jew who, who feels long ago abandoned by your own God, then you feel very small and, and helpless and insignificant. Orphaned, you might say, in a hostile world. And that's what we see in Isaiah as the Lord finally comes and addresses his people. He's addressing a people who are discouraged and disheartened and weary. So we see verses like Isaiah 40, 27. Why do you complain, Jacob? My way is hidden from the Lord. My cause is disregarded by my God. 40, 29. He gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. Isaiah 41, 14. Do not be afraid, you worm, Jacob. Little Israel, do not fear. Isaiah 41, 17. The poor and needy search for water, but there is none. Their tongues are parched with thirst. And if all that wasn't bad enough, it gets even worse for God's people. Far worse. Because now rumors are stirring. Stories from the far off in the east. Uh, tales that, that make you shudder and cause your blood to run cold. There's actually a new growing power on the horizon. A mighty conqueror whose empire is rapidly growing and it's spreading westward toward Babylon. The name of this conqueror is Cyrus the Persian. And as Cyrus rises to power, he quickly gains a reputation for being an unstoppable conqueror. Whoever Cyrus attacks, he defeats swiftly and completely. No one can stand against him. And so as Cyrus advances and the news of his victories begin to reach Babylon, a feeling of dread and doom is slowly but unmistakably creeping into the hearts of all the people of the Babylonian Empire. Thus Isaiah 41.5, The islands have seen it and fear. The ends of the earth tremble. They approach and come forward. They help each other, saying to their companions, Be strong. Imagine being little Israel and, and seeing all this happening on the political and the geopolitical uh, landscape around you. And, and for years, you have held in awe the great power of, of your Babylonian captors. And, and now, as these reports about Cyrus begin to come in, the Babylonians are, are just as scared as you are. And if they, your captors, don't stand a chance before this growing onslaught, then, then what in the world is going to happen to you? You're just a helpless worm. What will Cyrus do to you if he conquers Babylon? And that's how God's people are feeling. Like, like a guy totally overwhelmed by life, just trying to survive, hold up in a, in a corrugated tank. And if that wasn't bad enough, someone is riddling their life with bullet holes. Have you ever felt that way? Well, what does God have to say to such people? Listen to Isaiah 41, 10 and following. 
So do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you and help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. All who rage against you will surely be ashamed and disgraced. Those who oppose you will be as nothing and perish. Those who search for your, or sorry, though you search for your enemies, you will not find them. Those who rage, wage war against you will be as nothing at all. For I am the Lord your God, who takes hold of your right hand and says to you, Do not fear, I will help you. Do not be afraid, you worm Jacob, little Israel. Do not fear, for I myself will help you, declares the Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. What a promise. One of the great encouraging promises of the Bible. Have those words meant a lot to some of you over the years? Yeah. Well, then God continues in chapter 42, and his words are almost unbelievable. Because God not only offers his people comfort and help, but he also sends them on a mission. Now, you have to realize that nothing has changed between Isaiah 41 and 42. They're still in exile. There's still the looming threat of Cyrus off in the distance. Israel still feels weary and, and thirsty and tiny and, and discouraged and disheartened. Nothing has changed. But now God says, guess what? I have chosen you for a mission. Isaiah 42.1 Here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him and he will bring justice to the nations. Now, if you're at all familiar with this passage, you probably read those verses and say, wait a minute, aren't these words talking about Jesus? Well, hold on for a few minutes and, and stick with me. Because in Isaiah 41, God has just said that Israel is his servant. 41.8, but you, O Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen. 41.9, I said, you are my servant. Isaiah 41 is clear that God had chosen Israel to be his servant, to make his name known, to bring his blessing and his righteousness to all the peoples of the earth. Now this was a big job God was calling his people to. Isaiah 42, end of verse 3, as this job description begins to be um, rolled out for his people, in faithfulness, God says, He, my servant, will bring forth justice. He will not falter or be discouraged till he establishes justice on earth. In his teachings, the, earth, the islands will put their hope. Then God continues down in verse 6, I will keep you and will make you to be a covenant for the people and a light for the Gentiles. To open the eyes that are blind. To free captives from prison and to release from the dungeon those who sit in darkness. What a job! Wow! You can imagine Israel saying, Who, me? God, there must be some mistake. You must mean someone else. I am so weak. I am so wounded. I'm just a little worm. 
But listen to the insight of Oswald Chambers, the, the great devotional writer. He says, God can achieve his purposes either through the absence of human power and resources or the abandonment of reliance on them. All through history, God has chosen and used nobodies because their unusual dependence on him made possible the unique display of his power and grace. God is placing an invitation here before his poor, broken people to be used to join him on his mission to save the world. They're full of bullet wounds. And God says, come on, I can use you. I've got a mission for you. There's an old Indian tale about a servant whose job it was to carry water. And he bore a pole across his shoulders. And at the end of uh, each side of the pole, there was a, a heavy uh, jar, water jar hanging there. And each day, many times, he'd walk from the master's house down the uh, path to the well and back. And one of his two pots had a big crack in it. One was whole and perfect. The other one had a big crack. And while one pot always delivered a full uh, pot of water, the other pot always arrived back to the house half full because of the crack. And this went on day after day and month after month. And one day beside the well, the cracked pot couldn't stand it anymore. And he blurted out to the master, I'm so useless. I'm broken. I, I leak. Because of my flaws, you have to do extra work. I'm not, I'm not worth anything anymore. Well, the, the servant looked at the pot with compassion. Um, I think I said the pot blurted out to the master. He blurted out to his master, who was the servant. And uh, the servant blurted, uh, said back to the pot, as they started back for the house, the servant said, look beside the path. What do you see? And the pot said, well, I see a lot of flowers, beautiful wildflowers. And the servant said, notice there are no flowers on the other pot's side. And that's because I have always known about your flaw. And all along, I've been using it. I planted flower seeds along the side of the path, and you've been helping me to water them. And, and every week, I cut a bunch of those flowers, and they grace the table of our master. God delights to use broken pots. Well, sadly, but understandably, God's people don't take God up on his invitation to be used. They say, me? No way. I don't trust you, God, first of all. You don't care about me. And I don't get you. you you're, you're trying to do things all wrong. I mean, you're the one who got me into this whole mess, right? You've got a lot of making up to do, God. You've got a lot of proving yourself before I'm going to stick my neck out for you again. And besides, I'm hurting so badly. I just can't. I won't. Just leave me alone. I'm better off with my idols to comfort me. At least they make sense. At least they're safe and they're predictable. But Lord, you go find someone else to carry out your crazy schemes. And so God did. And we know the rest of the story. 
When God couldn't find anyone else to be his servant and to go on his mission, he came and he did the job himself. He did the craziest thing of all. He came down, he became a baby, born to peasant parents, a a nobody in a stable. And he grew up a no-name carpenter. And after three years of ministry with mixed success, he got crucified. He got stamped out by another great empire. He got himself weak and wounded and full of bullet wounds. Talk about a crazy way to get the mission done. But yet, that's not the end of the story either. Because the job position to be God's servant is still open. God is still looking for people to help and to participate in the work that Jesus, God's servant, is doing. Jesus calls them disciples, apprentices. He also calls them servants. The Apostle Paul was such a helper. He was another weak and unlikely man. He was not an eloquent speaker. He was not a clear writer. I mean, a lot of us have read Paul's letters. They're pretty hard to follow, aren't they? And God called Paul to give up his career and his social success as an up-and-coming rabbi and to become an itinerant vagabond preacher who was beaten and chased out of town, who went hungry, who was shipwrecked and imprisoned and finally was executed. Paul also had many bullet wounds. And what title did Paul love to call himself by? I, Paul, a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. A servant. You know, he got that job title from Isaiah, from the servant songs. And the job posting for servant is still open. And it's not just open to the healthy and the talented and the together the happy and the encouraged, but also and especially it's open to the broken, the battered, the bruised, the downtrodden and discouraged. Because surprise of all surprises, those are still the kinds of people whom God delights to use. Why? How? Well, to answer these questions, let's look a little more closely for a few minutes at the job description that God gives for this position of servant in Isaiah 42, 1 to 9. Verse 2. My servant will not shout or cry out or raise his voice in the streets. In other words, God says, I'm not asking you to be flashy or self-advertising. You don't need to know how to sway others with Uh, your eloquent or forceful words or your charisma or charm. Just be yourself. And if you stay close to my servant Jesus, his love will shine through you. Verse 3 continues, A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. Now reeds and lamps were key critical resources back in Isaiah's day. Reeds were used for building boats and furniture and uh, tools. And lamps, of course, were the major source of light back then. And what good was a bruised reed which had lost its structural integrity 
or a uh, smoldering wick which was just about to go out. And there are people like that. Bruised people, broken people with little strength. And smoldering people whose light, whose joy, whose hope have just about gone out. But God says, I don't want my servants to give up on such people. Be gentle. Be patient with them. Don't miss the potential that's still in them. God's servants are to be merciful and tender-hearted like Jesus was. Yet that doesn't mean that God's servants are wimps. No, God's servants need great strength and tenacity. Verse 4, In faithfulness, my servant will bring forth justice. He will not falter or be discouraged till he establishes justice on earth. God's servants are faithful. They do not falter. They do not grow discouraged. They persevere until the job gets done. They're tough as nails. They know how to take a punch and to stay on their feet. How? Where do weak and wounded people get that kind of strength and that kind of tenacity? Not from within themselves. Listen to Isaiah 41.10 though. God says, I will strengthen you and help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. And at the end of Isaiah 40 as well, famous words, and those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. And so God is not looking for superstars. But he's looking for humble, gentle people, for broken and scarred and even hurting people. Because in the mystery of things, these are the people best suited to the gentle, tender work that he calls them to do. And they're the people most likely to trust and to rely in God's strength so that they can persevere in this work. As someone once put it, The Lord doesn't call the equipped. He equips the called. This came home to me powerfully one Sunday in the spring of 2007. um, That spring um, had been dealing with the fact that my father was sick with cancer and I'd already made one emergency trip home to see him from Vancouver all the way to Pennsylvania And around that same time, um, Anne had a miscarriage. And so we were going through a lot. And and the Sunday before, the Sunday I want to tell you about, the elders and I and our associate pastor had had to let our congregation know um, of the difficult decision that our associate pastor would be ending his ministry with us. And the next week had been really brutal for us as leaders and um, because the elders and and I had had to field a lot of questions. and a number of accusations and suspicions from members of our congregation about what was really going on. And late that same week, I got the call that my father had died. And we'd be getting on a plane for the funeral Sunday afternoon. But first, Sunday morning, I'd be chairing a difficult congregational gathering to further address concerns about the circumstances surrounded our associate pastor's leaving. 
And by that Sunday morning, after that week that I'd had, I was completely wasted emotionally. And, and I was overwhelmed, and, and I had to preach, and I just prayed that God would get me through the morning. Well, my sermon went okay, but then afterwards, even before the meeting began, things heated up. I had two or three men corner me and start accusing me and yelling at me. And um, one of the elders came over to make sure I was okay, and before long, one of the men had his hands just about around the elder's neck and was yelling at him. And uh, the men wouldn't drop it, and after a while, their wives started yelling at them to let us go so we could start the meeting. So you, you can picture the situation that's brewing here, even before we get this meeting going. Well, the meeting went slightly better, though I had one guy storm out and say our leaders were all hopeless, and he just screamed and walked out of the room. And I had to lay out some really uh, strong ground rules for the meeting so that we could actually hold it. And we did get through it with some modicum of order and civility. And I don't know how I did it. But afterwards and in the ensuing months, which were a dark and tenuous time for the church, I had people tell me that they had new respect for me and that they felt I was giving the best leadership I'd given the church. And I can tell you it wasn't because I was strong or because I knew what I was doing. <laughs> but rather because in my weakness and in my pain, God was able to use me. And to be used in our weakness and in our woundedness, that was the invitation that God gave to Israel back in Isaiah. And it was the example that Jesus set for us during his ministry. And it's still his invitation for us who would follow him today. Never mind that we don't feel able. Listen again to God's reassurance in Isaiah 42. Verse 1, I will uphold my servant and I will put my spirit on you. And verse 6, I will take hold of your hand. So, CBC, we've been given a grand calling and an amazing job offer. And we don't need to be strong or healthy or qualified. We don't need to have what it takes to do the job. Because Jesus is already doing the lion's share of the work. He's done it, and he is doing it. And God just wants us to depend on him and to join in. And he promises he'll be right beside us and within us and around us and among us. So, will we take the job? Let's pray. God, your ways are mysterious and baffling. And sometimes we're tempted to retreat to idols like Israel did because they're safe and they're predictable. They stay where we put them. They don't do anything strange or surprising. They make sense. But thank you that in your grace you have sought us out and called us to serve the living and the true God. 
Thank you that you desire to use the weak things of the world to shame the strong and the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God, we have um, hurt a lot and we do hurt a lot. And we don't feel like we have much to offer. Sometimes we're just trying to survive and yet you call to us, you call us outside of ourselves to do far more than we're able to do or to cope with. And we ask you to show yourself as very real beside us, to strengthen us, and to do far more than we can ask or imagine. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. And so if you'll take the job, I invite you to show up for work first thing tomorrow morning. Um, And ask Jesus to show you what he has for you to do.